0: Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown and a very warm welcome to LPO Offstage. Today I'm joined by the LPO's Principal Guest Conductor, Karina Kanalakis in Amsterdam and Principal Horn Player, Anne-Marie Fedele in Dublin. And together we'll be delving into a truly evergreen symphony, Beethoven's third, known as the Eroica. Karina and Anne-Marie, welcome. Happy to be here. Nice to see you. Thank you. Hi. It's great to have you both. Now, first of all, Anne-Marie, I should start by saying congratulations. You've just been announced as the new Joint Principal Horn, apparently one of the quickest appointments in LPO history. Have you caught your breath yet?
1: Not really. I mean, I haven't officially started yet, so I don't think it'll fully sink in until then. But I actually, I didn't know that that was one of the, the quickest appointments. But <laughs> And how long was your Makes trial? Sense. Only really two weeks. I did two consecutive weeks on principle. I didn't actually fully realise it was a trial because it wasn't officially
0: labelled as such. But yeah. Amazing. I guess that's the best way to do it. No pressure. You just get to enjoy it all. Exactly. Well, we have done an episode on, on what the trial experience has been. And some people have said four, five years. So that really is... That's what I was
1: expecting. game <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so was yeah. a bit of a shock. And what does your new role entail? So I will be sharing the role with Johnny Ryan, who's the other principal. So we occasionally are on concert together and in those cases, we'll take part of the program each. And in other situations, it'll be just us. And then, yeah, playing first horn in concerts. Basically, that's that's pretty much it.
0: Fantastic. Well, no, congratulations. And I look forward to hearing you and seeing you in action very, very soon. Thank Uh you. And Karina, you've conducted Beethoven's third piano concerto with Stephen Huff and the LPO in 2021 and then the Eroica itself in 2022. What draws you to Beethoven's music and what for you makes Beethoven special to conduct? That is a loaded question. I know it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's not hard, it'll get um, easier. How long is this podcast? <laughs> I've got as much time as you 13
2: hours need. long? Um... <laughs> Let's see. I would say, you know, it's sometimes people ask you who's your favorite composer, which I think is sometimes like an awful question, because I think a lot of us, your favorite composer is whoever you're playing that week or at the moment, because you get so involved in what you're doing sort of that week. For me, if I had to, if I had to choose, you know, like Desert Island, one composer you're left with, it would definitely be Beethoven. Mm. It's a universal form of musical communication. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he he's obsessed with repetition in a very specific way. So if you look at every piece he ever wrote, there'll be a very small cell, rhythmically, harmonically, melodically, and he uses that, that small group, usually it's just Three or four notes, you know. If you think about da 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 da, or some, you know, whatever it is, yamparam in the ninth, it's something very small, and he repeats it over and over and over again, to the point that you would think. I mean, even the Ode to Joy, you know, the main theme of the last movement of Beethoven nine. I think it was that movie Immortal Beloved where there's a funny scene where his nephew makes fun of what a stupid mundane theme this is. And, oh, my uncle's writing this super boring piece, you know, because, you know, the melody by itself, especially if you look at the last movement of the Eroica Symphony, this theme and variations, the actual melody is super weird. It's like it's not a melody. It's a bass line. And he builds the whole thing on on that. Only he could do that. There's nobody else, especially not then, but I think no one else ever in history who could have taken something so simplistic and so accessible and made something so unbelievably complex out of it.
0: Mm.
2: Not so complex that it turns into Schoenberg where you really need, like, a lecture for at least 15 minutes before you listen to the piece in order to know what on earth is going on. You don't need any sort of pre-concert talk to you know, to be able to listen to Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. You can just go in and if one were to analyze why the music is so accessible, I think that's one aspect of it, is this idea of simplistic repetition that's then transformed harmonically and dynamically
0: in very unexpected ways. And it, it does feel like that when you listen to a Beethoven piece, no matter how long it is, there is elements of familiarity. Like I've been here before, but I feel like I'm building. I feel like I'm growing. And so with all of that sort of positive uh, insight, and I, I absolutely feel it, the Eurica was significantly longer than the early 19th century audiences were used to. Uh, one listener in 1805 uh, at the public premiere reportedly shouted, I'll pay another croix if the thing will only just stop. You know? Um, do you remember your first time listening to the symphony? And, I mean, now you're speaking so positively about it. Did it have the same effect? It had this, a similar effect on me when I was a student.
2: I remember the first time I played it back at Curtis when I was like 18 and I did not understand the opening melody I thought this is really really weird why is there this note that doesn't fit the key and it also doesn't give you any time to get used to what's going on there's no introduction there's no announcement of formality it just you know you're just tossed into this thing that stays in the same tempo for a long time I mean the whole movement and yet you just have no idea what's going on harmonically. And I I did find that uncomfortable mm. at first.
0: You, for you, anne I mean, then further in 1807, a reviewer complained that the theme and variations in the last movement, especially, were too long, very contrived. Indeed, several of its merits lie somewhat hidden. Did it sort of take a while for you to build a relationship with this piece or straight away were you into it?
1: I think the fourth movement especially is actually, the first time I heard it, you know, it starts so simple. Um, it's actually just quite funny, actually, to listen to because it it's so... Yeah, it's so bare at the beginning, and then to kind of hear that theme, which then turns into the baseline, I think of the of the later variations, to hear that kind of continue through. It's just so, it's just so clever the way it's done. I, yeah, the more I kind of listen to it and played it, the more I enjoy it.
0: And I feel that there's a top tip coming in here before we sort of really delve into the elements of the the piece, Karina. For listeners that either are new to classical music or new to this piece, how do you sort of fight that initial confusion or that initial sort of dispelling of, I don't know what this means, to really get into it and allow it to enter your soul, if you like?
2: I think repeated
0: listening and
2: maybe sometimes reading a little bit about the piece and understanding something about the composer and something about the time period it was written in, I think everything helps, you know, everything mm-hmm. everything helps to deepen your, your relationship to this music and your understanding of it. Um, it will change also over time as yeah. you yourself grow and mature as a
0: human being. No, that's really helpful. And Anne-Marie, as a player, when you Play this piece of music? How much does the history and the story, and you know, knowing who Beethoven was dedicating the piece to and what mind frame he was in at the time, how much does that impact your playing, or do you approach it just as a piece of music?
1: A bit of both, I think. I mean, as one player in the orchestra, I think my main role is to just kind of play the right notes at the right time (laughs) and play them nicely. I do think that because especially as a horn player, you know, we're we're kind of not the main bulk of the music, especially in in something like Beethoven. I do mainly approach it from just kind of the notes, (laughs) first of all.
0: And Karina, how important is it to you? I mean, right in front of me here, I have a a picture of the original score. And, you know, it was originally dedicated to Napoleon. And then, you know, when Napoleon had changed his name, and named himself Emperor, Beethoven scratched out the title so violently that he tore the paper. And, you know, even just looking at it in picture form here and seeing that break in the paper. I mean, it brings shivers to my spine, you know, listening to the piece again, it just opens it up in, in a new realm. How how important is it for you as a conductor to really understand what Beethoven was trying to put into this piece?
2: I think it's very important, although I do think it's secondary to, I mean, as Anne-Marie said, it is, it's always going to be secondary to the execution of the piece, because it doesn't matter how you know, deep your musicological knowledges of Beethoven if a chord is out of tune or people are not playing together. <laughs> um, It's kind of, you're missing the point. So as an orchestra, like an orchestra as a family and as an entity and a conductor also together need to be, everyone involved needs to be very much sort of firstly responsible for his or her own part mm. and try to all be sort of on the same page with the conductor. And that's what's beautiful if there is this kind of regular relationship between the conductor and the orchestra, like I have with the LPO, where we're able to do so much different repertoire together on a regular basis. Then I think it's much easier and much faster Mm. to come onto the same page interpretively and stylistically. Once you've done that, and once you're already starting from such a high point then I think the background knowledge of Beethoven's life situation, that can also add inspiration and certainly matters to me a great deal. I mean just the fact that he would scratch the paper until there's a hole in it obviously means that this was very important to him. He was really really upset. I'm glad he didn't, you know, scratch off the first the entire first page <laughs> or like that. destroy the piece or something. You know, he, was, he he controlled himself enough that the piece survives. And then just to add to that, I will say that I do also think from another completely different perspective That the music speaks for itself and you don't necessarily need to assign an interpretation, your own interpretation of what this meant to Beethoven, because none of us actually really know. It doesn't Mm. matter if you've read all of his letters and everything he ever wrote. None of us are... Beethoven. None of us are friends with Beethoven. None of us knew Beethoven. It's all word of mouth and it's all sort of speculation and it's your own projection of what you think it meant to him. And that's the case with all composers, Mm. especially composers that are no longer alive. It's important to know those things, but also I think you have to allow yourself the freedom to let the music speak to you the way that it speaks to you.
0: That's really helpful. Yeah. Know it, and then forget it and just let the music flow. Can we delve into the music then? Tell me a bit about the, the movements and the journey through this piece, Karina.
2: The beginning, as we know, uh, as we mentioned before, there's no introduction, which was at the time the normal sort of thing was to sort of shock the audience into shutting up um, and, and sort of take them into a an introduction that was usually in a slower tempo and then you would introduce the main sonata form, sonata allegro form, and you would have a theme and you would blah, blah, blah. But this doesn't do that. It just sort of whacks you over the head right away. As I mentioned before, the whole thing is in one tempo, and it is relentless. And it's relentless also as a performer. You feel just the length of it and the scope of it and the amount of energy that it takes to perform this piece. I mean, it's, it's it takes everything out of you because there isn't a single second where he lets you relax, (laughs) not in the whole entire piece, you know, maybe a little bit in the, in the scherzo, a little bit, but not really. That's sort of the challenge also is Mm. that you have to maintain that level of intensity. And then, (laughs) you know, as soon as you've finished with the first movement You have one of the most difficult movements that's ever been written for orchestra, which is this, you know, very famous, (laughs) intimidating march of funebre, which, you know, funeral march, which it's very, very challenging as a conductor to get the right tempo. Beethoven wrote metronome markings for everything he wrote. There's a lot of speculation as to what kind of metronome he had and whether or not it was accurate. And you know, some metronome markings are clearly too fast. Others people think are actually half tempo or double tempo. And there are all kinds of theories about Beethoven's metronome markings. I think in this piece they're mostly a pretty good indication. Although the first movement is not, it's not actually playable as fast as he wrote it, but almost, almost, right, oh, and, and maybe, maybe he's giving you also like a idealized, <laughs> heightened idea of what this nervousness of this fast tempo might bring you, even if you do need to take it a few clicks back to make it realistically playable for everybody. See. Um, but the slow movement, actually, you can take the metronome marking but conductors historically have done it much slower. And so now when you come and you want to you want to try to be accurate with the metronome markings, it can feel too fast and it can feel somehow automatic or without enough poetic taking time. And that's that's really the tricky thing mm. in general in this piece, especially in that second movement, is where to take time, how to take time. You don't want to be indulgent, you don't want to do something that's cheesy or holding on to a note longer than it's written. Why? You know, he would have written it longer if he'd wanted it longer. But you also have to be in the moment, in the performance and feel the audience. Thank goodness we have audiences again. <laughs> yes. You know, that the audience, that, that's also part of it. You sort of feel the tension of the room and how long are you going to hold that A flat, you know, before the fortissimo comes and how long, you know, it's sort of there are these moments in the piece that require a tremendous amount of playing with the tension of what is about to happen and the fact that you have no idea what is about to happen.
0: Mm. And actually, can I bring Anne-Marie in on on the playability of just really the first two movements there? I mean, in the second movement, hearing about that tempo, have you had to play it at a sort of unreasonable pace or have you always found that conductors have brought it back a bit?
1: as this is the only time I've actually performed it, that's the only only speed I've ever had it. But it is actually, for us horn players, the second movement is actually the trickiest, which you wouldn't, well, at least for me, which you wouldn't kind of expect because it's not got any big solos or anything, but because it's so delicate, every entry is so delicate and you're kind of having to blend with the winds and make sure you're kind of really quietly entering. And when the tempo is really slow actually does make it quite a bit harder because you're just waiting for every downbeat and trying to place it exactly together.
0: It sounds quite terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) How do you still sort of maintain the sensitivity of the piece while, you know, the practicalities of just trying to play in time and dynamic sense and in the tempo sense with everybody else? In that case,
1: so for the second movement, because I'm the horns are never on the tune, really you kind of have to forget about your part blend with whoever's on the melody and pretend you're kind of just supporting them rather than thinking too much about your individual part if you just listen to them the way they're phrasing and kind of go with that makes it a lot easier to kind of forget about the technical difficulties
0: and uh, we've spoken quite a bit on the podcast about sort of where people are placed within the orchestra and how that affects how they hear things so with something like this where, where are you placed within the orchestra and is it easy to hear the rest of the woodwind and hear the rest of the orchestra
1: yeah, we're usually right behind the wind. So actually in that movement, that makes it a lot easier because <laughs> they're mostly on the tune. So, and in that movement, we really do act as a wind instrument rather than a brass instrument. So to be sat there does make it a lot easier.
0: Brilliant, lovely. Well, that's good to hear. Terrifying, but at least there's some <laughs> comfort in there as yeah. well. Well, thank you, Karina. You've taken us through the first and second movement. Continue on with the structure for me.
2: Well, you know, we finished with the, second movement. And then we have the scherzo. So I mean, in this regard, we're following a traditional form and structure. So at least, you know, there is some comfort for people that may have been already fidgeting in their seats at the time. As Anne-Marie knows, you get this fabulous trio, which is for three horns, which was bizarre. Also back then, Uh, quite a statement to have three horns as opposed to two. And it's I would say one of the most famous horn excerpts that exists, probably, would you say it's one of the first things that you learned and had to practice as an orchestral excerpt? Yeah, I'd say so. (laughs) You know, that has obviously become so important and so iconic for a reason. My job at that moment is very easy. And I, I sort of just try to do as little as possible and not look at the three of you <laughs> just let you, <laughs> what why is you that? play it because I know it's so difficult and give a nice look, a nice positive look right before it starts and then let them do their thing. And the strings tend to kind of just go with the timing of the horns and the horns tend to sort of go with the timing of the conductor, but kind of also do, there is sort of a natural way that this trio falls into place that feels right. It just feels in the pocket and and you want to let the three players just sort of do that.
0: And Rui, I'm going to put myself into the horn section now. What is the feeling once you get to the scherzo? So you've had this really encouraging look from Karina, <laughs> and then. <laughs> and oh- <laughs> And then you have this three-part harmony in the horns. What is so difficult about it, first of all?
1: It's a solo for the whole section. So you've got to make sure that the balance is right, that you're completely together, that everyone's kind of phrasing and articulating the same way. I say that's the biggest challenge because, you know, you get loads of first-horn solos, but actually a solo where each of the three parts is kind of equally important, that adds a kind of extra challenge to it.
0: And is there a, a more difficult part out of the three? Sort of like once the scores are divvied up, it's like, oh, I'm not having that one. I don't want the one. <laughs> it
1: Depends what, what you're good at. So I, <laughs> I would find the second part actually the most challenging because it's the lowest of the three because I'm a high horn player. Uh-huh. <laughs> I prefer the higher parts, but a second horn might say that they would find the first horn part the hardest because it goes the highest. But
0: yeah, it just depends on what you're good at. And now that there are uh, the joint principal places, what would you take?
1: Actually, if both of the principals were on this concert, then one of us would be playing the first horn part and one would be bumping, which is essentially covering the first horn part to give the other player who's doing the kind of solos and stuff enough kind of stamina to get through it because it's actually quite a long piece and that's a tradition that we have in the UK that in most symphonic repertoire, there'll be an extra player on the first part to kind of cover the the tiring bits. That's Um, fascinating. Yeah.
0: Very good. And in Beethoven's time, this would have been played on a natural horn? Yeah. Uh, Do you perform on a natural horn as well or would you play the modern horn for this?
1: I don't really specialise in in the natural horn. I have um, tried it. I do play it a little bit, but I'm not confident enough to play it professionally (laughs) just because it's quite a different technique. You know, you don't have the valves, so you're doing everything with your embouchure and with your hand as well occasionally. So, any notes that you can't produce with the natural harmonics, you have to cover your hand. And there's lots of different kind of ways of how much you cover the bell. So it's definitely a different technique.
0: And are there any sort of quirks or things that Beethoven writes into the score directly for the horn in how he wants it to come across and any of them that you find fun or challenging?
1: One thing I always find quite interesting, there's a bit in the, going back to the first movement, actually. <laughs> um, there's one passage where the first horn very briefly goes into f so the the majority of the symphony were in e flat we're reading in e flat so we have to transpose and then there's one very short phrase of the main tune where the first horn plays in f and because at the time you were playing on natural horns it would take a bit of time to kind of change the instrument over from e flat to f there's a whole passage after where the first one actually doesn't play anything um, because it factors in that kind of time to change. And actually the third horn has all of the tunes. <laughs> it's just kind of one of those things that you only kind of realise why it's written that way until you know the context of what instruments it was written for.
0: What a considerate composer. I like it. <laughs> oh, I like that. Good. I, would, I didn't know that. So I'll take that with me. Thank you so much. <laughs> right. Brilliant. So I, I felt like i have a part of the horn section. That's great. Go on, Karina. Suspense is over. Take us to the fourth and finale (laughs) of, of this piece.
2: Oh, well, as we mentioned before, the theme, so it's theme and variations, but the theme is not really a melody per se. I mean, it starts off, first of all, pizzicato, which means that the strings are playing without the bow. They're just blocking the string with their finger. I remember getting a laugh from the LPO in one of the rehearsals where I said, can we just play this like we're making it up (laughs) as we go along? Because everyone knows it so well that it can, these days, end up sounding a little bit like run-of-the-mill if everyone just literally plays it absolutely in rhythm and completely normally. As soon as you've had the first utterance of the theme... You have an exchange of loud and soft chords between the winds and the strings. And those should come, ideally, as a great surprise. And I think if as a player, you actually can try to mimic that sense of surprise yourself in the moment, in every performance, which is challenging, especially we're going on tour with this in March. And We're going to play it, I don't know how many times in a row. You know, so we need to find a way to sort of every night reinvent that sense of the unknown and that sense of suspense and that sense of weirdness at sort of what on earth is he thinking and what is going on at the beginning of this movement. And as soon as he starts to develop the variations, I'm always reminded of the quartets. And also I think it foreshadows a lot of the quartets that he wrote later on, just the way that he wrote for the strings. It's very string quartet-ish. There's a lot of intimate interaction between the different sections of the strings in the first few developments of this theme. And the movement basically builds and builds and builds and it gets wilder and wilder. And every variation kind of starts to sort of spin out of control and and then, the, the, to me, the most amazing part of the piece that I just even have goosebumps just talking about it is when you suddenly come to a dead stop, almost at the end of the symphony, and you've been in a very, you know, quick, fast, exciting tempo, and you think you're building to the end, and then suddenly you plunge into this poco andante. this soft, almost prayer-like section where I always think of someone sort of being in great reverence to nature and awe of the world and awe of, you know, life itself. And this is where I think some of Beethoven's letters for me help a lot because we do know what he had gone through, especially while he was writing the Second Symphony. And the Hadstad Testament and the fact that he was losing his hearing, and this comes right after that and And we know that he at this point had admitted to the fact that he would have ended his life if it weren't for his art and what he felt he had to say and what he felt he had to express, and he just had to do that. He had to stay alive only because he wanted to write this music, and there's something. So moving about it, and it's a long section. it goes on and on it's not just a sort of a brief period of rest from the movement; it takes over, and this slow section takes over and brings you sort of up into this heavenly realm where he then also builds a sort of sense of building theme and variations based on this andante and it always brings me into a just into another universe. Mm. And that goes on almost to the very end. And then you hit the final presto. And then, you know, all hell breaks (laughs) loose. And the orchestra goes completely nuts. And the strings can never really quite play the double notes because it's so fast, Mm -hmm. you know, but it doesn't matter at that point. You sort of try to play literally as fast as you possibly can until the end. And hopefully, the conductor is not so mean that they take it where it is literally too fast to play, <laughs> which I'm sure has happened in performances. But, you know, hopefully as a conductor, you're aware of just the very, very cusp of what is possible with the tempo. And you go just right up to that line. <laughs> and then it's done. Yeah. And and it's, it's, it's fabulous. And it never, ever fails to get the audience up on their feet. Oh, it,
0: it, that description is just... Really brilliant. And I'm really interested in that idea that Anne-Marie, the conductor, is saying, can we just forget that we know this and play it like it's our first time? How, as a musician who's played it, how many times through the years do you even go about following that instruction?
1: It's tricky, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I mean, even for other pieces, solo pieces, it's it's one of the best advices I've ever had from from teachers and other people to... When you're performing it, especially approach it as if you're playing it or hearing it for the first time, I think that really kind of helps lead the listener through something that you actually know
0: so well. And what I've always found interesting, I mean, even when you're playing a piece of music, no matter how well you know it, you know where the difficult elements are. So to think that you're in this lovely, heavenly, reverential space in the Poco Andante, just taking your time really accepting the fact that it's a Thanksgiving, if you like, But knowing what's up ahead, how does that feel for you? And, you know, is the heart beating? Are you feeling, oh, gosh, right, we're going to really go for it at the end? What's that feeling like as a musician?
1: Definitely, as you describe, kind of the the calm before the storm. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, you can, you know, you see you're on the home straight. It's a long symphony. It's tiring to get through. That last section is just so glorious, that andante, and then followed by the presto. It's just a
0: lot of fun, really. (laughs) And Karina, how much are you sort of thinking, I'm going to really push them today? Maybe just in rehearsal, maybe not sort of in the actual performance of it. But do you try to push the orchestra to their limit in terms of the tempo of that?
2: Not on purpose. (laughs) I have to really control my level of excitement. Yes, (laughs) yes. I should find ways to sort of get it out of my system before going out, like do interpretive dance in my dressing room or something, (laughs) just to get, you know, the full excitement out of your system. Because as a conductor, you need to be... Also, the tree trunk and the stabilizing force. And you don't want to be... Nobody wants a conductor who's dancing around on the podium. It's really annoying. <laughs> you know, and we all, especially conductors like myself who are on the younger side. I mean, I'm not like young, young, but I, you know, I'm still on the young side mm. if you compare me to <laughs> Herbert Blumstead or, you know, <laughs> people that are really senior conductors who have lived with this piece for a long time who would probably do much more minimal movements than I do just by virtue of the fact of just your age and your enthusiasm about the music. Mm. It's very hard to control that when you are on the younger side as a conductor. And I'm always conscious of that. And I'm keeping it in mind, especially with an orchestra like the LPO, who are so brilliant on their own. And they play brilliant regardless of who's up there. Yeah. They play sort of equally brilliantly, regardless of the conductor. And I think that's really the sign of a great orchestra. That being said, I think it's important that the conductor can convey that excitement in a way that's actually... Receivable by the players, you know, where the players can respond to it. So you want to transmit that excitement or show on your face and with your hands as much as possible the character of the phrase and the type of sound you want in a way that a player can best respond to. And then you get the result that you are hoping for. And and there are certain moments in the piece you mentioned, like sort of having a moment where you know it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. This is very much the case for me at the very end. That last, very last slow section before the presto hits, you have the cellos playing ga 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 and you have this gunk gunk junk gunk junk It's so insanely suspenseful. At that point, you've sort of entered this worldly place but you have to pull yourself out of it. <laughs> You've got to pull yourself <laughs> don't out get dragged and sort in. of, you know, give people the eye. Like, okay, it's coming because everybody needs to understand what happens on that very last little triplet before the presto hits. Some conductors take time on it, some don't, some fade out completely. It's a deceptively tricky moment. So a lot of it is sort of... By giving a one look with your eye to everybody, just saying "Okay, ready," <laughs> and and that just gets everyone sort of like
0: ready, yes. you know. But it's it's very it's very very subtle. <laughs> and Anne Marie, it's it's subtle, but you understand it, right?
1: Yeah, completely. I mean, I think you're at that moment. You just know everyone's in it together, so you're kind of <laughs> looking for any any communication to take. So I think everyone's like. Just waiting, waiting for that little look.
0: I can hear some seagulls in the background there, but actually what you're describing almost makes me think of how birds kind of fly in pattern and in sync with each other and and moving like that. So I think that was a really, really (laughs) good accompaniment (laughs) for that metaphor. I could speak to you about this. Absolutely, forever. And you've really brought something new to the piece for me, actually. I can't wait to see it again live And you say it's on tour in March. I know, Karina, you have a a connection with the violin and Anne-Marie, the horn is for you. But if there was a part or an instrument that you could play that wasn't your own, what would it be? Tricky question. Um,
1: (laughs) I think, actually, maybe the bass, the double bass.
0: Mm. Something
1: different, you know, as the... First horn, <laughs> you're often kind of in the limelight, but it'd be nice to be kind of a part of a bigger section. Yes. And also they just have some brilliant moments, especially in the fourth movement. There's just some such great sections where we sort of look to the right and just watch them do that thing. And it's, it's amazing. I'll let you have that. Good. And
0: Karina?
2: Well, I'm not saying this because Anne-Marie is here, <laughs> but for me it's definitely the horn. And I always... My whole life have been obsessed with the horn, and I even had a horn for a little while and tried to play it. I will never play it where <laughs> anyone else would be able to hear, but I sort of learned how to play because i just I find the sound of the French horn to be so beautiful and pure, and I think that's why composers nineteenth century composers, especially, always give the most touching melody. I mean sometimes it goes to the clarinet because the clarinet can play so soft. Mm. But it often goes to the horn and, and and it'll often if there has been a melody that has been played by someone else previously in the movement and then it comes in a different key or it comes with sort of a more special, even more intimate meaning it'll be given to the horn always by all composers and sometimes right off the bat, like Tchaikovsky 5, you know, where it's just right away, here we go.
0: Should I give you the first, second or third part in the scherzo? (laughs)
2: oh man I wouldn't even be able to dream of playing either of the three any part maybe if you slowed down the tempo and gave me lessons for like three weeks maybe I could play it very slowly (laughs) I think there's something that wouldn't hit all the notes
0: and Anne-Marie how does it how does it feel hearing sort of a conductor that you've worked with know that she has such an affinity to your instrument does the way that she's approached the piece make sense in a little way now Yeah, definitely. It's good to hear that, but also it means I've got more pressure next time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Well, no, thank you so much for sharing your insights with me today.
1: Thank you. Pleasure.
0: Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Karina Kanalakis and Anne-Marie Fedele for unpacking the turbulence and the heroism of Beethoven's Eroica. And I especially enjoyed hearing their journey, the impact this piece has had, and also what instruments they would take in this piece. I think that is really insightful. So thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do let your friends know. We've got a fantastic archive of podcasts to enjoy from the past couple of years. There really is loads to discover. I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time for the next episode of LPO Offstage so I hope you can join me then.